The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. One problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And welcome to another edition of the Work-Life Balance. Man, I am fired up. I actually just hung up a phone call. It kind of fired me up. It it took me back a little bit. I'm going to just talk about that right out of the gate. Um, You know, I love volunteering and I love working with youth and uh, got a phone call from Junior Achievement and um, it made me think all the way back to my youth, but uh, they want me to help lead an entrepreneurship uh, class at Hoover High School here where I live in Alabama um, at a a national competition, uh, which they take extremely seriously. Um, And it made me go all the way back to when we won that. I won that in, in 1989 as a junior um, in, in, in a huge competition with Junior Achievement. And so it kind of is coming all the way full circle. So that got me all fired up. I took that call right before this radio show. So we're ready to talk, man. We're ready to go on this work-life balance. And speaking of that, I'm excited to take, I think, my first day off in 14 days um, as we have been go, go, go. Some of that was play, um, but I got to see a ton of you. I met a few fans out at Dragon Con in Atlanta this past weekend, which was 75,000 sci-fi fans, uh, Comic-Con fans, all kinds of people. But it's the second largest convention um, out there just kind of celebrating life. And some of the coolest people I think I've ever met um, go to that event. Man, they dress up. Some people maybe shouldn't have dressed up. But, I mean, look, it, it was a blast and, and met a lot of, of cool people um, out at uh, Dragon Con. Today is actually Star Trek Day, so it kind of fits into that. Had a great time um, in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, we were just coming off the Maxwell event the weekend before, so I had two straight weekends of huge conventions um, in, in learning and, and everything else. So, and my, my lid is full. I, that, that's all I can say. So I'm looking forward to this weekend um, to, to settle in with some college football, but it's not going to be a very long weekend as Sunday. I'm headed to Austin, Texas to see all of you at the Resource Planning Summit. I'll be with you guys Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, then heading to New York City on Thursday. Uh, and then I get to come back home and, and chill out for a little bit uh, and, and have my own work-life balance. So got lot, lots, lots, lots going on. Um, also, just posted a video to my Facebook and Twitter. Please go check that out. It is my personal why uh, of why we bring events like Live to Lead uh, to your area. Uh, Live to Lead is going to be an incredible event that's happening all over uh, the world, really. It's a simulcast event that's featuring John Maxwell, Dave Ramsey, Cheryl Boschelder, work done. Uh, it is a, a incredible event. Uh, again, tickets are going to be anywhere from 100 to $200, depending on where you are, but it's going to be going on in 250 countries around the world. That's October 6th. Uh, and if you just go to l2l.johnmaxwell.com, Type in uh, your zip code or your city. You can find out where it's going to be uh, in your location. But uh, I just put a very personal video up on my Facebook and Twitter. That's at Rick A. Morris. Or you can find me on on, uh, Facebook at Rick A. Morris uh, as to why I'm doing it. And our proceeds are going to charity and child care resources to to benefit the community here in Birmingham, Alabama. But, uh, you know, lots of stuff going on. So let's get uh, into today because I'm very, very excited uh, to have this guest on. We got connected through a, a personal friend of mine. You guys have heard him multiple, multiple times, uh, the friend of mine on the show of John Stenbeck. 
uh, who uh, we've got a book coming out a little bit later this year. Uh, but he connected us, and uh, I was very, very excited to talk to this gentleman because he's he's a member of uh, Avion Consulting. It's a management consulting firm which specializes in leadership, team, organizational development, and he's got 20 years of experience, and, and his areas of expertise include leadership effectiveness, coaching, communication, employee engagement, strategic planning, team building, change management. And this gentleman provides coaching and counsel to leaders from the middle management to senior executive levels, and he partners with clients in the design and implementation of high-impact leadership development solutions. He also works with management teams on issues related to both team and organizational effectiveness. He also has extensive experience in the area of organizational assessment and follow-up and has helped numerous organizations achieve significant increases in leader credibility and employee engagement. Now, he served clients in wide ranges of industries, including technology, financial services, healthcare, higher education, hospitality, retail, and many others. In addition, he's worked extensively in international organizations, spending considerable time over the last two decades serving clients in both North America, Europe, and Asia-Pacific regions. So beyond his extensive experience as a management consultant, he's also served on both faculty and leadership positions at a number of universities, including California State University, Long Beach, and the University of California, San Diego. And he's got a really, really incredible book that's going to be coming out that he's co-authored with several people, which is going to be our topic today. So I really want to welcome John Gates to the show. John, how are you doing, sir? Good, Rick. Thank you. So, John, let's get – first of all, introduce yourself to the audience. Just, you know, that obviously was your bio, but get into kind of the, the, the why of this book and, and, you know, really what's drawing you to this material and, and, you know, a little bit of the differences of the leadership that you're talking about here. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So uh, let me start by saying that uh, I co-authored this book, How Leaders Improve, with a, a couple of colleagues, uh, Jeff Grady and Sasha Lindekins. Um, and honestly, I don't think any of the three of us, uh, ever really planned to write a book. I think our mindset has always been, you know, there are a million books on leadership out there, uh, including lots of just fantastic books. Uh, but a few years ago, we started sort of pondering a question, uh, and the question was, uh, how do leaders improve? And that might seem like, um, you know, an odd question for leadership development professionals to, to ask. But what struck us is that so much of the literature out there on leadership uh, really seems to deal with some variation of the question, what makes a leader good or what makes a leader great? Uh, and we think uh, the question, how do leaders actually get better, is sort of a different question. So, you know, candidly, this started as a study, uh, and then the study became a book, and uh, we kind of went from feeling like we would never write a book to feeling like we had to write a book. We had a responsibility to sort of... Uh, share with uh, people in our field what we learned about how leaders actually get better. And so talk to me first about the parameters of that study. I mean, how do you how do you first take a look at, you know, how a leader improves? How do you measure improvement first? Yeah, yeah, great question. So I think actually, Rick, that question, uh, you know, gets at the essence of what it means to be a leader or what it means to engage in this thing called leadership. So for us, uh, being a leader is different from being a manager in that uh, you might have the title manager or uh, director or something like that. Um, and, you know, with that title uh, comes a certain amount of authority. People sort of need to comply or else they'll be insubordinate, that sort of thing. But that's different from be being a leader. For us, uh, leadership involves something like intentional influence in pursuit of common goals. And in order for people to be influenced by you, for them to want to follow you, they need to perceive you as credible. And credibility, of course, uh, as I said, is a perceived phenomenon. So to get back to your question, uh, the parameters of the study were we wanted to identify actual leaders in actual organizations who had actually improved in terms of perceived credibility over time. So we uh, approached a few of our client organizations uh, and asked uh, if we might do some sort of time one, time two assessment with leaders that we were working with identified a sample of leaders who had actually gotten better in terms of perceived effectiveness over time, uh, and they became the sample for our study. And from that point on, we uh, really just sought to find out how did these leaders actually improve, and uh, that's where the book came from. So me being an analytical person as well, when we say perceived effectiveness, is that, you know, Billy in the corner going, yeah, I like the guy better, or is perceived <laughs> effectiveness numbers, uh, profitability going to the bottom line, 
uh, projects coming in better? What's perceived effectiveness? Yeah, so for this particular study, uh, we used a very widely uh, used method um, of assessing leader effectiveness, and that is 360-degree feedback. Um, and, you know, for, for a long time, the way we uh, used 360-degree feedback in our client organizations was we would do some sort of an upfront assessment. And I, I trust that uh, many, if not uh, most of your listeners, are familiar with this tool. So it's a, it's a method of allowing a leader's uh, direct reports, uh, peers, higher-ups, and possibly others to provide anonymous feedback on how well they think uh, a given leader is doing. Uh, and for a long time, when we would use this tool, we would sort of collect some feedback using uh, a 360 assessment up front and then uh, spend a lot of time and energy uh, developing the leaders that we're working with and sort of trust that at the end of it all, the leaders must have gotten better. Over time, we've become much more insistent that uh, if we're going to do that sort of work, uh, we want to do some assessment on the back end to find out if indeed they are perceived as being more effective by the people that they seek to lead. Uh, so the method that we used was sort of time one, time two uh, assessment using a, a 360-degree feedback instrument. So in that time one, time two, what kind of variable were you seeing in that effectiveness? Is it, you know, are you getting now to an X factor, a Y factor in, 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 in measuring this on some sort of graph? Or, or again, I'm, I'm trying to get to that variable of effective leadership how, how is the, the results being measured out so that you could say, you know, this person is, is improved as an effective leader? Right. So uh, anytime we work with a leader, uh, almost invariably, a part of that work is to help the leader figure out what is the area or, or, or what are the areas in which I want to improve. And we can talk more about how we identify those areas in a bit. But um, once we've identified that... Um, uh, what we increasingly are doing is helping the leader to identify a few specific survey questions from our 360 survey that relate directly to the area or areas in which the leader is seeking to improve. And so uh, really there were two different ways in which we assessed uh, perceived improvement over time. One was, uh, did people think that a given leader had actually improved in the very area or areas in which he or she, she was seeking to improve based on those few survey questions that related to one's action plan. And then the other way in which we measured improvement was just overall perceived effectiveness. So we asked at the end of the six or nine months in which we were working with the leader, do you think this person is a more effective leader overall? And then quite simply what we did is in the several organizations where we were doing this, uh, this research, uh, we identified the top half of leaders in terms of overall perceived improvement, and those are the ones that ended up in our study. So I, I'm going to get into this in a second. We're, we're, we're about to get up against a break because I, I want to know, too, though, how much uh, cultural influence of an organization, though, is an impact, right? So, so I'm looking at this as now a data formula based on what I'm hearing so far. So I've got X mm-hmm. equals Y. And now I've got I've got a Z variable that's that that's going into this, which is now the cultural influence. Because one of the favorite sayings that 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 I've heard over time is that culture is going to eat vision for lunch. And mm-hmm. so, as an effective leader, and, and I'm going to share a story with you um, uh, in a moment, and uh, I, I want to see how that may affect or or work on. This, this effective leadership variable because it, it, I've got a particular story in which, you know, it, it hit me in an effective leadership per scenario where I lost an entire team, but, but there's an external variable. And so we're going to get to that story in just a second when we come back from break. Uh, you're listening to Rick Morris. I'm interviewing John Gates. We're sitting here on the Work-Life Balance. We'll be right back. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. 
Today, every business is in the software business. And business is booming. That's because we live in an application-driven world, where the lines between physical and digital are blurrier every day. It's a world where billions of connected things talk to each other, where agility is the new driver of competitive advantage, where applications aren't just part of your brand, they are your brand. All of this means you have a new mandate. Build the apps that will drive the future of your business and satisfy demanding customers, or fall behind. Only CA Technologies has the years of expertise and the end-to-end -end portfolio of software solutions to help you plan, build, manage, secure, and scale the applications at the heart of your modern enterprise. To learn how your business can thrive, visit rewrite.ca.com, your exclusive source for insights from the cutting edge of the application economy. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. I'm interviewing John Gates, and we're having a great discussion on leadership and, and really just how leaders improve. And so we were talking about, you know, really measuring that, right? Measuring how leaders can improve. And, and my question that, that I was preparing for as we went into break, though, is, you know, how much culture can influence that or even influence the outcome? And so I'll tell a quick story here. I'm a very young manager, and I was a very inefficient manager. I was making a lot of HR mistakes, but brand new to the game. And I had a team, an incredible team, and we were killing it and gelling it. Um, everybody was coming together. And... Um, our goal, we only had really one goal as a team, which was to hit 60% um, uh, of our milestones and production dates as a new PMO, project management office. So we get to the end of the first year, we hit 99% uh, of our milestones, 100% of our production dates. And nobody saw that coming, including me. And just an incredible team, again, 100% gelled. So we get to reviews. And I review my team as all fives. Everybody exceeded expectations because we did. And HR comes to me and says, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Uh, you're going to have to find somebody who is below your expectations. Everybody must meet your expectations and only one person can exceed your expectations. And so then I had to manufacture some data to meet HR guidelines. And so when I fought that, they said, nope, sorry. Um, if, if, that, if you can't do that, if you can't find a way to do that, then the problem is your expectations. And obviously, I had a, a moral issue with that, an ethical issue with that. So then when reviews came, my entire team was shocked. And I lost my team, right? They, 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 all of a sudden, now I'm the problem. And so as an effective leader, it took me forever. And, and I couldn't go to them going, sorry, guys, I wanted to give you all fives. But HR made me do this. So culturally, right, organizations sometimes set leaders up to fail, so how does that factor in? Yeah, great question. And I think, uh, you know, I see variations of what you just described, Rick, uh, in most of our client organizations. So, uh, for example, there's uh, one client we serve, and there are many others like it in the same industry, but in this client, you know, promotions happen once a year, and promotion spots are very limited, and so people are, you know, constantly trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to do? How can I sort of position myself politically or whatever uh, in order to get one of those, you know, precious few uh, slots at the level above me? Um, I think the way that factors into um, 
what we're doing here is this. Increasingly, and this is true in the clients that I'm thinking of as well as other clients, uh, the companies we work with uh, are, are paying attention not only to what results a given leader gets through his or her team, but, but how they're getting those results. Uh, and I think uh, increasingly, um, you know, the way in which a leader is perceived is a key factor in determining, uh, you know, whether a given leader is somebody that an organization wants to invest in. So I, I think what happened to you is, is, is frankly, uh, not good business. Uh, and I'm just, I'm gratified to see that, uh, you know, increasingly the clients that I'm working, working in say, you know, uh, what's really important is not only what results uh, this leader is getting. So in your case, the fact that you get 99% of your milestones means you're getting great business results. Uh, but also, how is this leader perceived? So if the leader is perceived to be a rock star and is getting great results, uh, then HR, in my view, ought not be meddling into things like, uh, you know, whether you're following some formula with regards to uh, the performance review process. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a battle that we constantly fight, uh, you know, in the corporate world, but I, I see things getting better. Yeah. So what I ended up doing was just forming my own company and getting rid of the review process, <laughs> which not everybody can do. But 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 it begs the question, though. Right. And so I watch I watch rock stars get beat down and I see the leadership beat out of them. And it's it's disheartening because I've seen incredible people with incredible talent become part of the pack. And so I, I was just interested. So we, I think we beat that one pretty good, and I, I think people see that pretty well. What other insights ha- have you seen or picked up through this process? Well, um, we actually ended up uh, identifying uh, 10 key insights uh, that, um, that seem to explain how our most improved leaders, as we call them, uh, actually got better. Uh, and the first one, Rick, is that um, uh, our most improved leaders – demonstrated what we call ripeness for improvement, uh, which really simply means that uh, either they uh, sort of intrinsically were ripe for improvement because, uh, you know, they're ambitious or they tend to be open to feedback or what have you, um, or they were ripe because there were certain things in their environment that made them want to improve. Uh, For example, a, a promotion opportunity or they were in the midst of some sort of a career transition and thought, hey, this is a good time to, uh, to take this sort of process seriously. Here, an example is uh, there was a, uh, a retail leader, a, sale, a sales leader in retail among our most improved leaders, uh, and he had found out that the, uh, the most senior person in, in the sales organization was going to be retiring soon, um, and he was informed that he was not a candidate to succeed that person. Um, and as I worked with him um, over the course of this leadership development process, his mentality was, you know, uh, I'm young, I'm ambitious, I'd like to be considered for this type of role in the future, and even if I'm not going to get the nod this, uh, this, this go-around, I want to make sure I'm well-positioned uh, the next time this position opens up down the road. So that was one of the insights that, that came out of our research, that, that leaders who are ripe for improvement uh, are more likely than average to improve regardless of what the specific leader development efforts might be. And John, just a second, we do have a caller on the line that would like to ask a question, and I think it's somebody you might be familiar with. Uh, Go ahead, caller. Hey, John and Rick. Uh, Rick, love the show. John, been following your LinkedIn posts about the book and can't wait to to, uh, actually get a copy of it. And, And what you guys are talking about, one of your posts, you guys talked about jolting, you know, feedback and I'm sorry, one of the LinkedIn posts that you made, John, was about jolting feedback, motivating change, and hearing Rick say, you know, was jolting. It jolted him so much he opened his own business, uh, right? right? So this seems to tie right into some of the core content of your book. But what about those of us who don't take jolting feedback very well or motivates change like negative depression? Right. Well, first of all, John, good good to hear your voice. Um <laughs> And I think the great actually, Johnston, um, that's, that's uh, you know, just one of the many ways, uh, almost one of the many paths that we found uh, to improvement. So um, if, uh, you know, if I, for example, were to get some jolting feedback, but I don't respond very constructively to it, uh, I think there are other ways in which either a skilled coach or a skilled manager might work with me. So 
as an example, it might be going back to the concept of rightness and saying, okay, John, you're not um, maybe responding to this feedback, um, you know, in, in a very positive manner. This isn't great news to hear or whatever. But let's talk about, um, you know, what, uh, what might help you to uh, take your leadership game to the next level or what might help you accomplish whatever your professional objectives are. So uh, in this example, it might be a matter of saying, hey, let's talk about what it would take for you to become a little bit more right to hear this, this message. Well, and, you know, that's when I, when I read your post, and I know these posts are coming out of the, the manuscript for the book, which is why I'm excited about, you know, seeing the book and was pleased to, to hear you were a guest on Rick's show, is that, you know, you talked about it becoming a penetrating message. And, and, and I guess maybe it's because I learn through reading more than probably any other channel, and I don't always have the luxury of a coach I can trust or that I'm, you know, actively using. And, uh, you know, that, that idea really just hit home with me. So enjoying yeah, hearing you guys right. talk about it. Yeah. Thank you for the call. It's always wonderful to hear my friend John Stenbeck's voice. And, John, we'll be, we'll be seeing you very, very soon, my friend. <laughs> Indeed. Keep up the good <laughs> work, you guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So w- when we talk about jolting and we, we, we talk about that, or even, even the aspects of coaching, one of the, you know, the biggest quotes, and you were kind of alluding to it earlier, right, is unless you make the subconscious conscious, it'll rule your life and you will call it fate, the great Carl Jung uh, quote. Um, you know, for that aspect of it, I, I think um, whether it was a jolt for me or, or whether it was there, f- for me, I recognized, even as a leader, that I wasn't going to be a very good HR manager, that I couldn't work within the confines of, of items that, that, you know, were going to be dictated because they were just policy for policy's sake. Um, and I think it, we, we can look at that as a negative or a positive. Um, for me, it was, it was a positive to understand that, that I was going to have to break out and become a coach on the outside. Does that make sense? Right. Um, yeah. And there's some people that just, that work fantastic within that environment um, a, a guy that that works with me now in, in my company was probably one of the greatest HR managers I think I ever worked for. To watch him balance uh, the knowing what I knew was happening internally in the HR world and all the policies and everything that we had to follow, but then watching him lead his team um, made me gain more respect for him as a leader. So I, I, I see it go both ways. I didn't want to bag just on the whole HR world. Um I do think 90% of those policies, especially when, you know, you only get 3% and you watch the CEO get 24, um, Mm -hmm. or that, like you're saying, there's only once a year that somebody can be promoted and those limiting factors, um, I think can really constrict an organization. Um, I I do think I can, I can see where we can measure, uh, you know, a leader's effectiveness and and growth um, when we see some of those factors. Yeah, yeah. Well, and actually, uh, Rick, your comment about how through that experience, uh, you know, you realized, hey, this is a particular type of environment in which I might never really be uh, a great fit. Uh, that, that actually, I think, relates to another of the insights that came out of our, our research, um, which relates to this idea of sort of uh, playing to one's strengths. Uh, and I think, uh, again, you know, for any, any listeners that might be avid readers of uh, leadership books or leadership articles, um, a lot of folks might be aware that around the year 2000, uh, there were a number of books that came out, great books, that sort of questioned this idea that leadership development uh, should be focused on sort of helping people understand what they do well, helping, what they, helping them understand what they don't do very well, but helping them address the, the things they're not doing very well. And this, this, uh, this body of literature that came out uh, starting around 1999, I think, uh, said, you know, unless one of your relative weaknesses is sort of a potential fatal flaw, you might be better off just setting that aside and focusing more on your strengths. Um, and what I hear in your story is you kind of realize, hey, I might, I might never be a great fit for this particular type of environment, but in a more entrepreneurial environment, uh, I might really be able to shine. Uh, the interesting thing that we found is that um, uh, the most improved uh, leaders in our study um, actually didn't uh, by and large, focus just on leveraging strengths. Uh, the most common approach was to say, you know, I'm going to focus on what we call a central issue, uh, which is sometimes a combination of a, a strength, so something that I'm already doing pretty well, but also an area where I'm getting some feedback that I could be even better. 
So I, on one hand, uh, in your story, I, I, I think it's uh, consistent with the common wisdom around leadership, which is we need to play to our strengths. And at the same time, our research actually challenged that assumption a little bit. I think that's great. We're going to take a break right here, and uh, we'll be back uh, to visit more with John Gates on the Work-Life Balance. You're listening to Rick Morris. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. This is not a radio ad. It's a collection of computers, servers, transmitters, satellites, and receivers, all powered by the most transformative force in business today, software. Just think about how many applications you have within reach at this very moment, and not just on your phone. If you're in your car, software is powering the GPS that guides you. Turn left ahead. The digital road signs that direct you onward, and the engine computer that keeps you moving. Soon, software will even replace you as the driver. Switching to auto drive mode. This is life in the application economy, and the opportunities for businesses are endless. But only if you have the tools to seize them. From planning to development to management to security, end-to-end software solutions from CA Technologies can help your business succeed in this new application-driven world. Learn how at rewrite.ca.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance. We're visiting with John Gates from Avion Consulting, and we're discussing how leaders improve. And right before we went to break, we're discussing central issue in... in you know, I, I think what's interesting about Central Issue, and, and it even ties back to one of the other insights you were talking about, which is, you know, being ripe for insight. Um, I think as I matured as a leader, though, you know, one of the things that you got to recognize, and, and I've heard it said a couple of different ways, you know, before you, you, know, before you really can improve, you got to be aware of the improvement or you got to be you – know, so, so you've, you've mentioned two key things, right? Ripe for improvement – also, mm-hmm. um, being centrally, you know, having a central issue. So it's not only just playing to your strengths, but uh, being aware of an issue that you could improve and, and working on that, which is something that I started to do probably in my mid-30s. Um, but I would say in my 20s as a leader, wasn't aware of my issues because I was blind. And you can't, um, you can't be aware unless you're aware, right? And, and, um, and, and so coming back to even to the Carl Jung quote, um, I think there's a maturity of a leader that starts to be able to say, um, I need help in these areas. I recognize I'm deficient here. Therefore, I'm going to go improve that area. Yeah, right. And um, I, I think uh, for many of our most improved leaders, uh, one of the factors that caused something to be identified as a central issue is exactly what you just alluded to, which is a, a blind spot that perhaps somehow gets exposed. So again, since uh, you know our research was based on uh, feedback that leaders were getting, 
Uh, it may be that uh, there's something that I think I'm doing quite well and, uh, you know, it gets exposed as uh, maybe an area where I need to improve based on the feedback. And, and here's really where that, that term came from. I, we started to notice something over time, and that is, you know, since we tend to work with leaders over a period of several months, uh, every now and then in, in the second or third meeting, uh, we would ask, uh, so remind me, what are you working on? And, and every now and then the response would be something along the lines of, well, uh, uh, hang on a second, uh, it'll come to me, right? And they, our conclusion was if a leader can't even recall what he or she's working on, there's a pretty good chance he or she isn't working on it. Uh, and conversely, when we asked our, our most improved leaders, even months after the fact, hey, what are you working on? Uh, virtually to a person, they knew exactly what they were working on, and they had crystallized it down into a, a, even a word or a short phrase and that became the, the central thing that they were focused on. And again, Rick, as you pointed out, sometimes what makes something a, a central issue in part is that it's a blind spot that gets exposed and, and the individual says, hey, I really need to focus on this. Absolutely. And we were actually talking on break and you mentioned something as well called a guiding metaphor. What, what's a guiding metaphor? Yeah, so I, I actually remember the first conversation I had with one of our most improved leaders uh, where this idea sort of uh, surfaced, for me at least. Uh, early in the conversation, uh, this gentleman um, said something like, well, you know, John, at some point I just realized in reading my direct reports that I needed to stop giving people answers to the test. Now, of course, there were no answers to a test. There, there was no test. Um, and he used that same term a few times in this conversation, and when I, when I asked, hey, what do you mean by this? He said, uh, and, you know, this is probably pretty self-explanatory, but he said, I just realized ultimately that, uh, you know, people would come to me with a problem or an issue, and uh, my, my natural inclination would be to just tell them what I, I think they should do. It was like giving them answers to the test. And so his, his central issue became realizing that there are, there are other options. And so he started disciplining himself to do a better job of, of asking the other person, well, what are your thoughts in terms of, how we can approach this issue. And if that were just an isolated example, it certainly wouldn't have made it into our, our book. But what we noticed was uh, many of our most improved leaders uh, used such uh, guiding metaphors, whether it was I need to get out of the weeds or I need to have more of a velvet hand and a, uh, or a, uh, an iron fist and a velvet glove uh, or what have you. Uh, a lot of them had such guiding metaphors. And I think really what it did was it just helped them to sort of crystallize the issue that they were focused on and keep it front of mind. So that was another sort of powerful device that helped our leaders to get better. Yeah, you remind me of one of my key learning points. It's a, a mentor of mine by the name of Christian Simpson. Um, and uh, it's, it's about really what they're talking about is directed learning, right, versus coached. Mm. And uh, he, he says, if you give them the answer, you rob them of a lifetime of learning. And mm -hmm. uh, that, that was a very, very poignant moment for me as, as a leader um, that says, you know, all the answers are within, you just got to coach it out of them. And um, yeah. so you can tell them the answer and, and they'll forget it 30 seconds later and they're just going to ask you again. Um, but if you if you let them learn the answer themselves, then they'll, they've learned it for a lifetime. And that was such a moment for me um, as a leader and, and a person that this is something I've never forgotten. Yeah, so maybe that was sort of a, uh, a penetrating message for you, that way of framing that particular uh, bit of insight. Yeah, but absolutely right on par with the, the guiding metaphor, right? It's it's the same thing. It's it's when, when somebody hits me, I was always the answer guy. So whenever they came to my right. desk, it was just, here's your answer, go on. Here's your, And then I would be upset that my phone would ring while I was on vacation. But right. I never <laughs> did anything to prevent that, right? Yeah. And, and so... That it's exactly the same thing. Um, what what other do you have any other insights you'd like to share? Well, and actually, I'd like to piggyback on something that you just said, which is uh, you know I, that I, I finally sort of got around to to addressing this. I think that gets at the heart of our, our study. I I think it's fairly common these days for leaders to be aware that uh, you know the term you used was a uh, you know sort of directed learning or or we can call it you know coaching having a coaching conversation i think you know there's there leaders generally realize that the best approach to coaching and, and guiding others uh is frequently not to just tell them uh what you think they should do 
However, despite the fact that, you know, people seem to uh, agree on that wisdom, not every leader actually gets better in that area. So really what we, we tried to figure out through our, our research was, okay, how do you move from uh, having that insight sort of resonate with the leader, hey, I shouldn't always just give people answers to the test, to actually improving in that area? And whether it was identifying a central issue or latching onto a penetrating message or establishing a guiding metaphor, there were very specific methods that our leaders, uh, our most improved leaders use to help them actually improve in such areas. Well, let's piggyback that for a second because I'm actually giving a speech in Austin, Texas, and it's funny because um, people are asking more and more, how do we deal with the millennial generation? Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting is is the tolerance for directed learning versus coaching conversations has just grown thinner. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's an issue with the millennial generation. I really don't. I think the millennial generation demands coached learning versus directed learning more so than the older generations. I just do. I, I just think we expect it. And if we have a, a a leader that just kind of blows us off or tells us the answer, we just kind of say, well, that's just, that's our leader. That's okay. Mm-hmm. And I think the millennial generation says, no, I demand more. And people don't know how to handle that. And so, therefore, it's a generational gap. It's a generational issue, and people are people. Um, and I don't see it as a genera- generational issue. I see it as people are people, and people need to be led. And so, I, you know, I, I don't really see as big of a gap or issue as other people do. And, and maybe that's just me, and maybe I'm naive, but I don't. I, I see you know, I, that I can lead people the same way. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. In fact, uh, there's a... Um an organization we've been doing some work in uh, where we were brought in specifically because uh, this this organization is uh, having a hard time keeping some of its best young talent, you know, largely millennial uh, generation folks, uh, having a hard time keeping them engaged and retained. And uh, so we came in and, and did some work really, again, to help leaders to sort of avoid always reverting to directed learning and try to use uh, you know, more of a coaching approach and so on. But at one point, as we were talking through some of the research on what millennials really value in the workplace, uh, you know, we had a, a leader who very much was not of <laughs> the millennial generation look at the, the, the list that we had up on the, the slide and said, you know, all of those things apply to me. Uh, those are things that I want as well. I, I would like somebody to serve more as a coach as opposed to just telling me what to do and so on. And, uh, you know, as we sort of kept our ears open, we heard more and more of that, that really... Yeah, maybe the, the, the people in the millennial generation are being a little bit more vocal about this, but I think they're doing us all a favor because I think it's a, a general need or at least a sort of a desire out there. Yeah, David Maester did a study um, that I referenced in, in my book, Project Management That Works, uh, written in 2008. And it, it identified, you know, it basically put a, a bunch of employees in a room and a bunch of their leaders in a room, and it asked them to rank things in order of importance to them. And it was salary and wage and feeling in on things and, and all kinds of things in order of importance. And the, the leaders, you know, had like salary number one, you know, moving up into the organization number two. You know, all the, the, the things that had to do with title and money we're at top. Mm-hmm. And, and number one on the employees list was, you know, feeling in on the conversations, being part of the decisions, being part of a team. Those were one, two, and three. Salary was important. It was like four. Of course, it's important. But once you accept a job, the salary negotiation's over, right? And, and they want to still feel like that they're, they're worthy of, of the money they earn. But they want to be part of a team. They want to be included. They, they don't want to be directed or have decisions made behind closed doors. That's not right. a generational thing. That has been something that has been part of every employee study that goes all the way back to baby boomers. It, it, it does. But I think yeah. that millennial generation is just a lot more vocal and will check out a lot quicker than, than you know, maybe some of the more loyal generations. Right now, the millennials are like, that's... Eh, been three months. I don't like it. I'm out. <laughs> right. So I think right. I think they're a little bit more apt to check out quicker, but I don't think it's a generational gap. So we're going to take our final break here. Then we're going to come back with our last segment, where we'll ask the question that we ask of all of our guests of John Gates. We'll be right back on the Work Life Balance with Rick Morris.
Today, every business is in the software business. And business is booming. That's because we live in an application-driven world where the lines between physical and digital are blurrier every day. It's a world where billions of connected things talk to each other. Where agility is the new driver of competitive advantage. Where applications aren't just part of your brand, they are your brand. All of this means you have a new mandate. Build the apps that will drive the future of your business and satisfy demanding customers, or fall behind. Only CA Technologies has the years of expertise and the end-to-end -end portfolio of software solutions to help you plan, build, manage, secure, and scale the applications at the heart of your modern enterprise. To learn how your business can thrive, visit rewrite.ca.com, your exclusive source for insights from the cutting edge of the application economy. This is not a radio ad. It's a collection of computers, servers, transmitters, satellites, and receivers, all powered by the most transformative force in business today, software. Just think about how many applications you have within reach at this very moment. And not just on your phone. If you're in your car, software is powering the GPS that guides you. Turn left ahead. The digital road signs that direct you onward. And the engine computer that keeps you moving. Soon, software will even replace you as the driver. Switching to auto drive mode. This is life in the application economy. And the opportunities for businesses are endless. But only if you have the tools to seize them. From planning to development, to management to security, end-to-end -end software solutions from CA Technologies can help your business succeed in this new application-driven world. Learn how at rewrite.ca.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we are back for our final segment this Friday afternoon. You know, before we get to John, just hearts and prayers, everybody who, who might be listening that's that's evacuating. I certainly have clients uh, in, in South Florida as we've got the hurricanes that are starting to line up in impact. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, so I've got many, many friends um, that listen to the show that, that I know are starting to either hunker down or... Uh, uh, evacuate as well. So our hearts and prayers and minds and thoughts uh, are with you guys, as well as uh, the continued efforts uh, for Hurricane Harvey. Um, you know, we talked to Todd Nestlany last week with with a lot of stuff there. And so as new impacts come in with Irma, uh, we can't forget uh, Harvey as well. So um, coming back to John, uh, John, do, do you have any final thoughts on the book uh, before we get to our, our final questions? Well, just Thank you for the opportunity to uh, share with your listeners a little bit about, um, you know, sort of how and why we did our research and, and what some of the insights uh, from the research are. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some uh, other key insights that, that we found related to how to have critical conversations and um, uh, how to sort of make sure that you've got uh, the appropriate support, the social support to uh to uh, improve as a leader, uh, but hopefully this conversation has at least uh, whet your listeners' appetites in terms of what we found through our research. So thanks again for the opportunity. And, and the book's not out yet. When is it, when is it coming out? Uh, November 4th. It'll be available on Amazon. Absolutely. So we'll make sure that we follow up and announce that uh, there on the show as well. And how can people get in touch with you? So we uh, can be reached through our website uh, either at avionconsulting.com uh, or we have a website for the book specifically, which is howleadersimprove.com. Uh, and, of course, we're also available uh, on LinkedIn, so I can be found uh, John Gates on LinkedIn. So uh, those are a few ways to get in touch with us. And then, of course, finally, the, the question that we ask of all of our guests, what is the best advice you've ever been given? Yeah, what a great question. And I have to say, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is is not a bit of advice, but rather a person which is my father, Ivan, uh, he passed away years ago, but uh, he was certainly 
the biggest uh, mentor in my life. And uh, interestingly, he was not much of an advice giver. So the thing that he said that really kind of uh, sticks out in my mind was not so much a piece of advice, but a piece of wisdom. Uh, this was back in the day when I was teaching at the college level and uh, was, was, you know, teaching students some of these management concepts that you and I have been talking about during this hour around motivation, coaching, and so on. So I asked him, Dad, what, uh, as a successful business person, um, you know, what have you found to be sort of the most important thing uh, for leaders to do to be effective? And his answer surprised me because it had nothing to do with motivation or coaching per se. He said, I think the most important quality that a leader needs to demonstrate is good judgment. Um, and I think that's always stuck with me because, uh, you know, if we know all the right things to do in terms of how to motivate people, how to coach people and so on, but we don't exercise just good judgment on a day-by-day basis, um, then we're not going to be highly effective. So um, sort of a piece of advice, but that's the, the wisdom that um, my dad shared with me that's uh, always stuck with me. I love that. Yeah, I share, I've shared multiple times. Uh, I lost my dad when I was 19. And so he he opened every morning with, what do you think the price of rice in China is this morning? So I don't know if that was wisdom or a riddle that I'm supposed to solve. I, I got a chance to interview my brother on the show a few weeks back, and he and I discussed that. If, if, if that was just something. But if I didn't answer, I was in trouble. So sometimes I would say 30 cents. Sometimes I would say, I don't know, Dad. And uh uh, but if I didn't answer him, that that would start our morning off uh, sideways. I can tell you that. Um, but man, would I love to uh, know if there was ever really a, a correct answer to, to that question. <laughs> That's a great story. Man, do I miss him. Um, but yeah, so thank you so much, John, for, for being with us and look forward to the book. And uh, we'll, we're in full support of it uh, and interested to Uh, dive in further into the research as well. So we certainly appreciate you being a part of the show. Rick, thanks so much for having me. And so everybody in Austin, Texas, we're headed your way. Uh, So I will be there Sunday night. Uh, I believe there's a social plan there. Then I'm doing the uh, closing keynote of Monday night, uh, talking about, uh, you know, how to uh, help uh, retain and and, uh, help manage, which I know people hate that term, but I'm leaving that term in there on purpose how to help successfully manage the millennial generation. Uh, so that's what we'll be doing Monday night at the Resource Planning Summit uh, in Austin, Texas. And then i uh, be hanging out Tuesday and Wednesday with you guys, headed up to New York City Thursday, be back in the ham on Friday uh, so that I could be right here to host the show again next week. And next week, um, our guest is is super, you know, uh, I, I prepped uh, this, this next show, and I'm not even going to say his name. But this next show, just to tease it, th- this young man is a USC student, and and you and he, he holds like mini Shark Tanks already for USC students, um, and and he's already with a servant heart and servant leadership, um, so involved in his community. And and so when we talked to him and, and talked about him coming onto the show, um, this this young gentleman absolutely one hundred percent blew me away, and cannot wait for him to be on the show next Friday. So you're absolutely going to want to tune in. Uh, so that's going to be the work life balance next week. Um, it's going to be kind of a surprise guest, but this kid is amazing. You're absolutely going to want to tune in uh, then. And so we've got some other exciting guests coming up, uh, including a live event. Uh, I'll be doing the 29th from the IIBA conference here in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, we'll be doing some live give and take around Agile uh, that's happening on the 29th. So we've got a lot of stuff uh, that's going to be occurring right here in the Work-Life Balance. We love everybody who tunes in and hangs out with us every Friday. We hope you'll tune in next Friday with us. You've been listening to the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show. 